listen, if you can find a Bible nearby, which is very likely now, you can reach into the rack in front of you and you can pull one out and we'll be on page 981. We, this is, I've been waiting to say that for a long time. We, we bought a bunch of Bibles when we were uh, portable and we would tote them around with us. The portable team really hated my guts on that one because that was the biggest cart, the heaviest thing. We'd roll it out and we'd have to set them all out and then we'd have to clean up each week. Uh, but now we have new chairs and we have racks under there. Yeah. And uh, you can find Bibles. We, we actually are, are in the process of ordering more. I couldn't even remember how many we had, but we need a bunch more. So we'll have those in the, in the coming weeks. But we're on page 981. I'm going to read the passage. Uh, we'll pray and we'll get to work. But let's start in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, it reads like this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together this morning, we're asking that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak. Lord, we want to know what it looks like to live as aliens and strangers in a hostile land. And that all sounds weird and bizarre, but we believe, Lord, that you have given us here what we need for life in this moment. So we're praying that you would minister to each of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a couple things as we get started here. Uh, the first is, I just want to make a qualification, a couple of qualifications. One is, uh, as we do this together, we've been going through a letter from the New Testament, working our way through this, and uh, I was talking to Ash about it this week, and it's, it's just something that I need to articulate because it's a conviction of ours. When we have church together, one of the things that we do uh, is I will preach from the front, and I'm normally talking to Christians. 
I'm normally talking to those of you that consider yourself to be believers, and I'm trying to help us think through how can we be built up in our faith and how can we be encouraged along the way. There's a reason for that. One is we're at a church, and if you're going to guess what kind of people would show up on a Sunday morning and you know commit of their time and their energy to be here, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing more than likely it's going to be believers. Now, that does not mean that we don't care about the world or we don't want to do things in a way that's sensible to them, but our strategy around here is that we want to train you and equip you, and then we send you out. And the place where a lot of ministry and mission is going to happen is away from the, this building. It's going to be in your homes, and it's going to be in your neighborhoods, and it's going to be at your place of employment, and it's going to be at the places that you frequent quite regularly. And we believe that you have it in you, that by the Spirit of God equipping and training you, we can encourage you week by week, and then we can send you out, and you can be God's witnesses in this world. But I wanted to make that clear. So I'll be talking this morning mainly to Christians, and the stuff that's here is quite quite radical. The other thing that I want to say to you, just to give you a heads up, none of us are going to like what Peter says today. I figure I should probably say that on the front end because what he's suggesting here is just so radical. It's so counterintuitive. It's so uh, different that I'm not even sure I hear a lot of this kind of communication within churches. I think we kind of shy away from this stuff, but God is giving us here something that is this counterintuitive, radical way of displaying Christianity to a watching world. So let's get to work here. We've got a general principle in verses 11 and 12. We've got two specific applications of that principle in uh, verses 13 to 19, uh, nope, 13 to 21, and then we've got the gospel motivation of how we're going, going to pull this off at the end there in verses 21 and following. So the, the general principle, verse 11 and 12, is this. You are different. If you're a Christian, you have been transferred into the family of God, and you now have this new identity. And Peter has been reminding, of this, uh, reminding us of this over and over again throughout his letter. He's using a, a term that he is fond of. It's the idea of being a stranger, a foreigner, an exile. So in verse 11, it reads like this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires and then positively in verse 12 to live good lives. But that identity is that first piece. We have to understand we're, we're different. We're a new creation. God has brought us into a saving relationship with him through faith in Christ and we become new people. And in fact, when you become a Christian, it is this radical experience. You now have a new citizenship. In fact, if you just glance up at the earlier verses in chapter 2, we're told this. We become God's chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Uh, people who were once not his people now are his people. But the word that's used repeatedly in that previous paragraph is, you're a new ethnicity. You're a new people group. You now belong to God. You have a, you have a new allegiance. So some of the identity markers that I hold, I live in Illinois, so I'm a resident of Illinois, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, um, I like to skateboard, I've got all these different things that I can describe myself to. What this reminds us is that you get, as a Christian, you get a new primary identity. You become primarily a citizen of God's kingdom, his family. 
And all those other things, they're still relevant, but they're no longer the key defining features. And in fact, let me put it like this. True Christianity is not just the addition of Christ to an already full life. If I'm all these things and I added Christ, it becomes the new hub of your life. You become a follower of him. You become saved by him and therefore in allegiance to his lordship in all areas of your life. But he's saying, look, this is who you are. You're a foreigner and an exile. And what that means is, as a citizen of the kingdom, you can no longer relate to the world in the same way. You now feel that reality of being out of place. You, you have a, a king in heaven, and your primary allegiance is to him. So when you deal with things in the, in the earthly realm, you recognize, I'm different. I'm a foreigner. I'm a stranger. I'm a sojourner. I'm here. I'm invested here. I love here. But my citizenship is in heaven with God. So we, we relate to that. We understand this idea of foreigners and exiles. The, the illustration that stood out to me the most was from, uh, Tim Keller pointed this out. It's from the Lord of the Rings. Do you guys remember the hobbits? They were these little people that lived in the, in the Shire, and they loved it. They lived in Middle Earth, and uh, they, they were not very heroic or adventuresome or any of those different things. But a couple of them ended up kind of getting co-opted into this incredible journey. And so they became a part of this fellowship with dwarves and elves and all these uh, majestic individuals, and, and they were participating in this, in this adventure of trying to save their world, trying to save Middle-earth and the Shire especially. But they were on this journey, and they went through trials and difficulties, and, uh, and, and then uh, they were victorious. And so they returned home, and as Tolkien writes in, in, his, in his books, he, he talks about the fact that when they returned to the Shire, they were no longer the same. They loved it. They fought for it. But when they got back there, they began to realize, oh, this is no longer it for us. And actually, Tolkien describes it like this. They would go to the edge of the water, they would look off to the west, and they would sing songs. That's a picture of Christians. We love it here. We, we fight for here. We want this place to be blessed. We want to be invested entirely. But as citizens of, of God's kingdom primarily, we recognize we are longing for what he's going to bring one day. And though we call this place home, we relate to it as foreigners and exiles. And then we sing about the city to come, the heavenly city that God himself is bringing. So he says, look, as this, this is your identity, as this, as foreigners and exiles, here's what you need to do. Live differently. On the one hand, live differently in this way. Abstain from sinful desires. Look at verse 11, halfway through it, it says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's no neutrality here. It's not that we're, we just kind of coast through life, we become Christians, and we just kind of, you know, easily go through life. No, it's saying that there's a battle that's happening right now. There's a war, a spiritual battle that's going on, and these evil desires are resident within us, but they're waging war against our souls. This means that there is danger. We have to be thinking through, how can I put off these evil desires that I find in me. And you might say, well, Cor, what do you mean by that? What, what are the evil desires? The New Testament describes them in a few different places, but ordinarily they have to do with pride and selfishness and relational sin. So we become bitter, jealous, angry, hostile. Uh, we become murderous in the way that we deal with other people. Uh, it's all about us and what we want. Those evil desires are in each of us. And so what is this saying? As aliens and strangers... 
Don't go there. Put off that sin of the flesh. The, the sin is waging war against your soul. So uh, John Owen, a Puritan pastor, he put it like this, and, and it's very stark, but it's a way to just remind ourselves of how serious this is. Uh, John Owen, he, he said it like this. He said, you, you must kill sin or it will kill you. So Christians are not a people to just kind of sit back and go, yeah, yeah, I just struggle with this, this no big deal. He's saying, no, we need to put off this former way of life. And the stakes are very high. Well, that's negatively put, abstain from sinful desires. Then it tells us to, to do something positively. We're to live in the world in a different way. Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among, among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's saying live in a way that is beautiful. It's one of the ways that you could translate that word. It's actually the word for beauty. So live so beautifully that even if people are accusing you of doing wrong, you're, you're going to respond not by trying to justify yourself, not by trying to defend yourself. Um, this is the natural response. So if I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple, pastoral premarital counseling, we'll go through an exercise where we, we put together a wish list and we're trying to help people communicate assertively and listen attentively and, and to hear you know, here's what this person's saying, and I'm, here's what they want, and how, how that would make them feel. Now, the interesting thing about doing a wish list like that, if you populate it with things that cause conflict, when one person starts communicating, the listener, what are they doing? Justifying themselves in their head, readying their rebuttal. Here's why I'm right and you're wrong. You might want that. Here's why I'm not giving it to you. That's what we ordinarily do. We ordinarily try to defend ourselves and our own honor. The Christian way, however, as we're presented with here, is to live beautifully, which means we're going to be accused, but we're not going to respond in, in a way that normally people would respond to that accusation, which would be to retaliate and to justify and to get even. We are to live beautifully so that as the world looks at us and says, look, Christians are a problem, and they accuse us of doing things, we do not kind of get, get ourselves ready to fight back and go, okay, we're going to prove you wrong. We're, we're good. No, we're just going to do good and live beautifully and help people see the beauty of Christianity. Um, by doing that, they will be able to glorify God on the day he visits. But Christians are a people who are aliens and strangers, and the world is going to notice that more and more, and there is going to be an increasing hostility toward it. I, I would put it like this. I think that if you are going to follow what Jesus demands from us as his followers, we will be harassed for that. And I don't think that's a wild statement. In fact, if you look at the New Testament and if you look at church history, normal for Christianity is to be out of step with the world around it. Persecution is normal. What we have experienced over the last hundred years in our, in our environment is abnormal. For Christianity to be just widely accepted, and everyone just says, yeah, that's probably a good thing. I'm probably one of them. No, normal is you follow the Lord, and you are out of step with the world, and the world then hates you. The, the Bible says it like this. Darkness hates light. Be, people who do not understand God will not understand you. You will be off-putting to them. They will accuse you of doing wrong. I saw it this week in two different places. Uh, one was a, a show that Ash and I were watching, and what was being communicated there was, 
if you hold to certain Christian teachings, if you actually believe certain things about the world in which God has made, and you actually believe that the Bible's right on this one, you're not simply wrong, you're dangerous. You, you are, you're a problem for humanity. That's how the world is beginning to communicate about Christianity. Uh, I saw it also on social media, a real flesh and blood person that I know, communicating that same, that same point. If Christians really believe this, they're not just wrong, they are bad for us. So are we going to change what we believe? Or are we going to stick with what the Bible says? And if hostility comes our way, are we going to fight back and retaliate? Some of you are like, yeah, I like that idea. No, the Bible is saying we live beautifully. The response to hostility is not to match hostility with hostility. The response is to love and serve and sacrifice and bless. Let's look at how this plays out in two different ways. One is our relationship to government. This is a part we really do not like, but look at it. It tells us in verse 13 and following, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. It's saying, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to authority. Now, first off, we don't even like the word authority in our society. That's one of the reasons why churches really struggle with this. That's a dirty word. Authority is a bad word. But the Bible uses it here, and it tells us our responsibility as followers of God is to submit to every human authority. So I've got a few questions. Who are we talking about here? Which which authorities do we have to submit to? Secondly, what does that look like? What does that mean exactly? And then why on earth would we do that? I mean, what's the, what's the justification for doing that? That just sounds wrong. And finally, is there ever a situation where we might not obey? So who are we talking about here? Now, if you were to think about Peter, who's writing this letter, and the Christians that are spread throughout Asia Minor, and the specific government that they're dealing with, we're talking about Nero. Nero. Now, question, church fam, is Nero a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy. Some of you are like, no, boo, Um, which is right. He's a bad guy. In fact, history will tell you. You can do a Google search today. Just read about Nero. Uh, Tacitus was the historian who wrote primarily about him. Uh, I I believe that he was probably, his reputation was probably pretty sullied because people didn't like him in general, so I'm not sure what's true or not. But the general census, the general opinion of this guy is he was not a good leader. He was a pretty sketchy individual. The, the citizens of Rome, he's the emperor of Rome and all of their jurisdiction around there. The, the citizens of Rome, his own people described him as tyrannical, self-indulged, and debauched. Um, Tacitus, that, that historian, he, he basically pointed out the aristocracy, the ruling class didn't like him. The common folk didn't like him. He was, he was not a very liked individual. Now, there were a lot of things that he may or may not have done, but they are pretty sketchy. Just the allegations against him are very sketchy. One of the things that happened was the city of Rome started on fire, and it burned. And some people think Nero probably started it because he wanted to rebuild and have that glory for himself. But here's one of the things that he did. When Rome caught on fire, and it was burning, and it was a national catastrophe, he blamed Christians. He said, you know who I think did this? Followers of the way. 
They're the problem. And that led to wide-scale persecution of followers of Jesus. They would arrest them, capture them, throw them in prison. They would douse them with oil and light them on fire. And that was common practice in that first century. So when Peter writes and he says, hey guys, I want you to submit to every human authority, the emperor, he's talking about Nero. That's why when we hear that, we ought to gasp and go, wait a minute, are you sure that's a good idea? Are you sure that's a good idea? That sounds wrong. And that actually sounds like it's a harmful teaching, Peter, that you want us to submit to governing authorities? You want us to submit to Nero? That guy's a problem for us. He's making our life difficult. He's, he's opposed to the things of God. And, and Peter says, essentially, I know. But what we are going to do is so counterintuitive and so radical and so beautiful that though we are accused of doing wrong, on the day when the Lord visits us, God will be glorified because of our voluntary submission. So if, however you view the moment that we're going through right now and the civil leadership that we have right now and how sketchy we might think it is, it's nothing compared to what the first century experienced. So if we're going to listen to what Peter is saying, we have to think through, okay, we actually do have to consider how we might obey governing authorities. So what does that look like exactly? Well, it says there that we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake. We're submitting to governing authorities, not because they necessarily deserve it. In many cases, they absolutely do not. We're, we're submitting to them because we're submitting to God. What they have is a, uh, an authority over us that has been given by God himself. And we therefore choose to obey out of obedience to Christ for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, we do this. We're, we're submitting to governors. We're submitting to the emperor. We're submitting because we believe that by doing so, we are doing what God wants us to do. Look at verse 15. It is God's will. This is God's will for us, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. As we are accused of doing wrong, there will be hostility toward us. People will be looking for Christians to misstep. They'll be thinking that we are a problem for humanity and for society at large. Let's silence their talk. How do we do that? Well, should we fight back? Should we retaliate? Should we prove them wrong or silence the dissenting voices? No. We voluntarily submit. We live beautifully, and other people take notice of that. We submit in that way. Now, why on earth would we do that? Well, one of the reasons why we would do that is because it glorifies God. We would silence the ignorant talk of foolish individuals, and people would see our obedience to governing authorities as ultimately an obedience to God himself, and they would say, that's different. That's beautiful. And they might glorify God as well. Look at verse 16. Live as free people. We have a freedom. In Christ, we are free. We are slaves to no, no man, no human institution. Our, we, we have been liberated from those things, but, but in our freedom... We voluntarily obey. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as God's slaves. Submit yourself to governing authorities in that way. Government is God's idea. It's a good idea. It is to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Romans 13 says the same thing. Government is a gift from God. It's an imperfect gift, but it does serve a purpose and Christians need to be able to relate to the governing authorities in that way. And by doing so, we are commending the beauty of Christianity. Now, I know that what I'm saying right now is, it is contested. 
by many believers right now. We do not want to do this. We want to resist. We want to rebel. We want to fight for our rights and our dignity. But the New Testament is reminding us the way forward is so radically different. And by doing that, we can glorify God on the day that he visits. Should we ever disobey? Sure. There is a situation in the New Testament where there's an example where the followers of the Lord were, were basically told, you cannot preach Jesus anymore. This is Acts chapter 4. And they said, look, that's going to be a problem because that's what he told us to do. So instead of obeying you, we're going to obey God. The, the one qualification given in the New Testament for civil disobedience is when the government tells us to do something that God has uh, forbidden, they say, you need to do this. And we say, well, we can't. God said not to. Or the other qualification would be that they are causing us to not do something that God has told us we need to be doing this. But ordinarily, the essential teaching of the New Testament is that believers submit to authorities. And by doing so, we glorify God. That's the first example. Second one here, let's look at verse 17. It says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Secondly, we talk about work here in verses 18 and following. It's talking about slavery, which I know we can, that can be lost on us. This is not like chattel slavery. This is not like unjust uh, examples that we would have in modern history. This is more of a social dynamic that was normal in the first century, and it's more like employment. And here's what it says. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. If you, if you have a, somebody who's over you and has expectations for you, if you're a believer, you submit to them. And you go, wait, 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 wait. What if they're not a good boss? This is a conversation, a live conversation I have quite often. What if your boss isn't good? Well, that's the, the point that he goes on to explain here in verse 18, not only to those who are good, but also to those who are harsh. What if your boss is a bum? Here's what the Bible says. Submit and do it out of reverence for God. Not because that person is deserving of your obedience, but you as a believer, you are to live in a way that commends the beauty of Christianity. Verses 19 and 20, for it is commendable, commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So if you have a boss and you don't like them, this is not just an excuse to say, you know, hey, I'm just going to talk poorly about them. I'm going to withhold my productivity in my industry. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do my job very well because they don't really deserve it. This says, no, listen, you as a Christian can glorify God through your work ethic, even if your boss is unjust, even if your boss is harsh. You can glorify Jesus Christ through the way that you work. That's the principle applied to that work environment. So we gladly submit to every human institution, whether government or employment or whatever the case might be, might be, and even if it's hard for us, and even if it means that they deal with us in terms of hostility, we do this because we are aware of God. We are conscious of God. We are, we are submitting not, not just to them, but ultimately to God, and that's what he wants for us to do, and that is radically different and counterintuitive. So finally, how on earth are we going to pull this off? Look at verses 21 to 25. Now, what, what happens here is he is basically giving us the heart of his argument. In fact, if you just look at the, this is kind of confusing, but I think you guys are smart enough to get it. You've got a general principle, 
two specific applications, gospel motivation, and then it goes back up. Two more specific applications, the principle rehearsed, okay? Principle, practical applications, the gospel, more practical applications, principle rehearsed. Here's what that means. The heart of the argument is right here. If you are going to do this, it's not going to because of your not going to be because of your resolve. Like you're going to go away from here and be like, I'm going to go do this quite well. No, no, no. This is central. The good news of the gospel is at the very heart of our ability to live distinctly Christian lives. We can't do it in our own strength or efforts. This is a reminder of what Christ has done for us, and this gives us power. This gives us ability way beyond ourselves. So let's look at it here. This is our calling. Verse 21, to this you were called. To what? To humbly submit to authorities out of reverence for God. To this you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. This is your calling, and here's why. Jesus did this. He's not asking you to do something he was unwilling to do. This is exactly what he did through his death, burial, and resurrection. He, he is our example, and he is our model, and he is the one that we follow. We're, we're following his leadership. This is exactly what he did for us. He suffered for us, leaving an example that we should follow in his steps. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't do anything wrong. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was mocked, ridiculed. He was crucified, and he didn't retaliate. That's the wild part. He didn't do anything wrong. He was wrongly accused, and then he was executed. But along the way, you would expect for him to be like, wait, hold on, guys. You got me all wrong here. Let me tell you what I'm really about. No, he humbly goes to the cross. Look at verse 23. When, when they hurled their insults at him, they spit on him, they mocked him, they plucked out his beard. When they did that, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He entrusted him, instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is the way of the cross. I had the privilege of, of being in Jerusalem, and there's a, there's a pathway called the Via Della Rosa. The, it's the way of the cross. And you walk the, uh, the pathway that Jesus carried his crucifix. And you can see places on the wall where people... Where, where tradition has it that as he was carrying the weight, he would have to brace himself, and he touched the wall there, and so then everyone comes there, and they touch that one spot, because this is where the Lord touched, the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. Here's what, here's what the New Testament says. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to touch a brick-and-mortar wall. What Jesus is calling you to is to follow in this way, the way of humble submission to God the Father, the way of voluntarily suffering with sacrificial love for the good of other people. This is the way of the cross. He set an example for us. He was innocent. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He, he, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's this idea of non-retaliatory love. And that idea will keep showing up in the coming weeks. So put that one in your back pocket, non-retaliatory love. If you're a follower of him, that's what he did for us. So we need to figure out how can we do that for others. When we're maligned, when we're harassed, when we're mistreated, how are we going to be more Christ-like? He himself, look at verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the good news of the gospel. What he did there was so that we might experience salvation. In his body, he bore the curse of sin for us. The the penalty and the payment of sin is death. And he bore that curse in himself on the cross. Now, by doing that then, he offers us salvation, forgiveness, redemption. And, And by doing that, he's calling us into this new citizenship and this new way of life so that we no longer live for the sinful desires of the flesh that say, no, if you do me wrong, I'm going to get you back. No, we don't do that anymore. We live like him. And we voluntarily and humbly and graciously submit to the Lord for his sake and for his glory. We no longer live to sin, but we live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. If you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you believe that he went to the cross and he died for you, those wounds that he experienced that were inflicted upon him of the pierced hands and the the pierced side, those are the healing remedy for a broken world. Verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. God has redeemed you through the blood of Jesus Christ so you might be right with God. You are returning home to God himself, to the one who oversees your very life. So friends, I urge you, I urge you, just like Peter does here, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, live beautifully for Christ's sake. Live differently. Do not retaliate. Do not get angry and try to get back at people, but live like Christ did. He was willing to go to the cross for us. He suffered and bled and died so we might be redeemed, but he is alive and well right now. He's inviting us into his way of life. Let's follow his leadership. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us to walk this way of the cross. We admit, Lord, how radical these concepts are of of willingly submitting to every human authority for your sake. Lord, we have, we're clueless here. We, we don't know even where to start with this. So we're asking that by the power of the good news of the gospel that you would change our hearts and incline us to obey your ways. And we pray, Lord, that as a community of faith, we could be a living example of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to live in a way that testifies to who he is and what he's done for us. We pray in his name. Amen.